I just start right at the top and fire some people. The best politician of all is Nixon. But boy, when you get in tight and close and he's under attack. President Nixon heard today the voice of the campus in a massive appeal. He's known as the madman theory. Make those North Vietnamese think that he was just crazy. Here was a fellow who seven years before was the biggest loser in American politics. <laughs> Astonishing. He was a textbook for how to damage our democracy. I have Dr. Kissinger calling you. Nixon was a paranoid. Everybody was told a different story. Mr. President, you are saving this country. I thought this is really what he means, and he's the president. It was a very intense time. From PRX, this is Nixon at War. In 1971, the war in Vietnam was still going on. But to Nixon and Kissinger, it was now a chronic annoyance that they were managing, finally offloading. They saw Vietnam as an irrelevant backwater. Nixon biographer John Farrell. Not terribly important to any United States strategic interest, except for the fact that we had to get out there with a modicum of respect, with some flags flying with some prestige intact, so that we could continue to be a superpower elsewhere around the globe. I think what drove Nixon mad that summer was this. That receding backwater war had suddenly been whipped into an 11th-hour front-page problem by the liberal elite. And just as he was going to grab the brass ring. The greatest honor history can bestow is the title of peacemaker. And it really was about to be bestowed on him. All that spring, Mr. Anti-Communist Leader of the Free World had been working to create a normal relationship with big, scary, nuclear missile-armed communist China. Working secretly, and in this case, justifiably so. Mao Zedong and Premier Zhao Enlai had finally said okay. And in July, a week after Kissinger secretly met with Zhou, I have requested this television time tonight to announce a major development in our efforts to build a lasting peace in the world. I sent Dr. Kissinger, my assistant for national security affairs, to Peking. The meeting between the leaders of China and the United States is to seek the normalization of relations between the two countries. It is in this spirit that I will undertake what I deeply hope will become a journey for peace. Peace not just for our generation, but for future generations on this earth we share together. A bona fide historic breakthrough. And U.S. military forces were continuing to leave Southeast Asia right on track. And so by the fall, with his re-election campaign about to start, Nixon had pulled ahead of the presumed Democratic front runners in the polls. But his domestic special ops Cold War that grew out of the Vietnam War against his American opponents kept escalating. Late that summer, Nixon's aide Bud Krogh gave the green light to the plumber's first completed burglary. Friday of Labor Day weekend, his gang broke into the office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychoanalyst. I'm Kurt Anderson, and from PRX, this is the final installment of Nixon at War. Episode 7, The Tangled Web. Here's what I now understand happened. Dan Ellsberg. Nixon 
pursuing a policy which involved the possibility of continuing to escalate the war, possibly even using nuclear weapons, had to shut me up and keep me from revealing documents that I might still have, or he assumed I probably did have, that would reveal his planning going back to 69. I had to be influenced, coerced, into not putting out any more documents that will deal with Nixon. So basically, the first step they took there was to try to get information from my former psychoanalyst's office, Dr. Lewis Fielding in Beverly Hills, that I would not want out to threaten me with being put out if I didn't cooperate by shutting up. A psychoanalyst's office seemed to be a logical place to do that. They didn't find information there that they could blackmail me with, but it was a good try. Nixon told David Frost he didn't know about that burglary beforehand. But if they had asked his permission? I would have said, go right ahead. Call it paranoia, but paranoia for peace isn't that bad. Basically, what Ellsberg really boils down to, I mean, the discrediting and all the rest, what it boils down to, I didn't want to discredit the man as an individual. I couldn't care less about the punk. I wanted to discredit that kind of activity, which was despicable and damaging to the national interest. Nixon was not terribly reckless to believe that he could commit crimes like this and keep them quiet. Presidents did this kind of thing all the time, and nearly all of them they kept quiet. So he wasn't unusually reckless in doing this. He had bad luck. But he was vulnerable. There was a possibility. And he took that risk to preserve a Vietnam policy that he thought would work foolishly, but not impossibly. He was wrong. Plotting and executing burglaries, abusing government power, paranoia run amok. But publicly, as 1971 turned to 1972, Everything looked swell for Nixon, especially his week in China at the center of the world's attention, meeting for hours with the leaders, his historic photo op with Chairman Mao. East meets West as a handshake bridges 16,000 miles and 22 years of hostility. At the summit, face-to-face, two leaders who direct the destiny of one out of three persons on the earth. The gate to friendly contact has finally been opened. In 1972, I turned 18, registered for the draft, and, thanks to the new 26th Amendment, registered to vote and volunteered in the campaign of the Democrats' peacenik nominee, George McGovern. Which made it kind of funny when I got a letter from President Nixon naming me a 1972 presidential scholar, one of 120 graduating high school seniors invited to the White House in June to receive a medal with his signature. You are coming to maturity during a period marked by chains and controversy, both at home and abroad. At the Rose Garden ceremony, I wore my McGovern button. Alas, Nixon stayed inside, meeting... I know now, with Kissinger and Haldeman and Colson. Instead, we got Vice President Agnew. And I can assure you that your views will be listened to with interest. For the rest of the world, there was a more memorable White House-related event that week. We have a mystery story out of Washington. 
Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. He is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then... They were there to bug the phones. Among the Watergate burglars were the same guys who'd broken into Ellsberg's psychoanalyst's office the year before. But the world didn't know that yet. And through the remainder of the election year, the White House cover-up worked as Woodward and Bernstein slowly reported bit by bit. Watergate would not become Nixon's existential problem for many months. And at the end of October 1972, We believe that peace is at hand. A sudden, breathless Kissinger White House press conference. TV news special reports, huge front-page banner headlines, a big, successful October surprise, and about peace in Vietnam like in that last presidential election. We believe that an agreement is within sight, and having come this far, we cannot fail, and we will not fail. Eleven days later, we have accomplished what was thought to be the impossible. We've not only won a majority of the votes of America, but we've won a majority of the votes of young America. He'd squeak by in 1968, but now re-elected in a massive landslide, winning 49 of 50 states. I notice some of the commentators are referring to the fact that it may be the greatest victory in American political history. Let me tell you, but this will be a great victory depending upon what we do with it. I'd started college that fall. It felt as if they'd ended the revolution without me. Cy Hirsch had just become a star reporter at the New York Times, thanks to his Pulitzer Prize reporting on Vietnam. And my sense was that the protest movement was deflating. To the degree Vietnamization and Nixon policy worked, it worked to make young people like me think, man, I'm good. I mean, was it your sense as a journalist that as a story, the the Vietnam War was sort of receding? Not for me, but it was. I joined the Times to do Vietnam, and I was sent there to make whoopee on the war. And within four or five months, they demanded I leave, and I was put in the Watergate. They said, forget Vietnam right now. You know, you got to do this. And I was really shocked. Americans were really eager, even desperate, to move on from Vietnam. I realized then that there was a sense that we'd lost the war. Just before the election, announcing peace, Kissinger had said, It is inevitable that in a war of such complexity, there should be occasional difficulties in reaching a final solution. And so there were. I reluctantly concluded that the only way to break the logjam was to bomb military targets in Hanoi with B-52s. There was a huge public outcry. The Christmas bombings, B-52s day after day for two weeks, the most massive campaign of its kind since World War II, in which the U.S. killed another 2,400 Vietnamese civilians. I received very few messages of support. That whole January of 1973 is like some pre-finale montage. Daniel Ellsberg's federal espionage trial begins in L.A., Back in Washington, a second inaugural. When we met here four years ago, 
America was bleak in spirit, depressed by the prospect of seemingly endless war abroad and of destructive conflict at home. As we meet here today, we stand on the threshold of a new era of peace in the world. Two days later, Lyndon Johnson dies in Texas. His confidant down there, Walt Rostow, still has the X-file about Richard Nixon and Vietnam that LBJ had given him. And then, the very next day in Paris... Good evening. I have asked for this radio and television time tonight for the purpose of announcing that we today have concluded an agreement to end the war and bring peace with honor in Vietnam and in Southeast Asia. In the settlement that has now been agreed to, all the conditions that I laid down have been met. Within 60 days from this Saturday, all Americans held prisoners of war throughout Indochina will be released. During the same 60-day period, all American forces will be withdrawn from South Vietnam. The people of South Vietnam have been guaranteed the right to determine their own future without outside interference. In January, Nixon's Gallup approval hits its absolute peak, 68%. And on the separate question about Vietnam, 75% of Americans approve of how the president has done. But the week right after the peace treaty is signed, the first Watergate burglars are convicted, followed a week later by the formation of the Senate Watergate Committee. In early March, in the final calm before the full Watergate storm, Nixon sits down one afternoon in the Oval Office for a long, discursive chat with one of Washington's old-school power brokers, Tommy Corcoran, an advisor to presidents since he'd worked for FDR, who nicknamed him the Cork in the 1930s. First, the president brings up Corcoran's recently deceased pal, LBJ. I was so glad that before he died, he knew that uh, the war had been ended in a honorable way. In other words, by extending the war in order to get myself reelected, I've also done Johnson a big favor. But finally, Tommy the Cork gets to his very specific mission. His protege, Anna Chenault. He had been a friend of her late husband, the general, and was now what the newspapers called her constant companion. Mr. President, I happen to know what was going on in 68 when I had kept I know what you were doing in 68. And despite the pressure, your loyal friend did not snitch. And now would like an appointment as a roving ambassador to Asia. Anna Chenault, who was a very loyal soldier for Richard Nixon. Nixon historian Ken Hughes. And she wanted and expected to have some sort of political reward in the Nixon administration for uh, the services that she had done. But the Nixon White House realized that she was a hot potato for them, that the possibility that her activities would come to light and become a big political issue was ever-present. She never got that presidential appointment as her quid pro quo. And a few years later, she talked to a Washington Post reporter about what she'd done for Nixon. If people like this ask me to do something again, I'm going to make them put it in writing. Not long after LBJ died, 
Walt Rostow handed over his X-File about the activities of Mrs. Chenault before the election to the new LBJ Presidential Library. On it, he wrote Top Secret and attached a letter. It is my recommendation that this file remain sealed for 50 years. Over the years, some of the material has been released, but the rest remains sealed in Austin. The 50 years are up in 2023. I asked LBJ's man Tom Johnson what secrets may remain. Do you know what's in that thing? I do not. I do not. I'm Kurt Anderson. Nixon at War will continue. Lyndon Johnson had one goal, to be the greatest president, doing the greatest good in the history of this country. I'm Melody Barnes. As President Obama's Director of Domestic Policy, I saw just how difficult it is to move the needle on anything of real importance. And yet, Lyndon Johnson did just that. Johnson got votes by pulling lapels and nose to nose. From PRX, LBJ, and The Great Society, wherever you get your podcasts. For the rest of 1973, the Nixon downfall proceeds. Dan Ellsberg's trial is stopped by the judge, all charges against him dismissed. The president's ex-speechwriter, William Sapphire, now a New York Times columnist, learns that he was bugged in the White House by, quote, Nixon or some lizard-lidded paranoid acting in his name. The president finally makes Kissinger secretary of state, after which Kissinger, not Nixon, wins the Nobel Peace Prize for ending the Vietnam War. By the end of the year, Watergate has pushed the president's approval down toward 25%. Then, 1974, the end. This lengthy standing ovation from members of the White House staff. He's resigned, the only president ever to do so. Never get discouraged. Never be petty. Always remember, others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. And then you destroy yourself. And nine months after that, another end. Saigon, April the 30th, 8 o'clock. The last American helicopter on the roof of the American embassy prepares to lift off the last of the evacuees fleeing before the advancing communist armies. By the way, that iconic final helicopter out of Saigon, operated by the CIA's airline Air America, a company founded by Anna Chenault and her husband, and then acquired by the CIA with Tommy the Cork Corcoran as broker. Now to uh, give you details of the events of the past few days and to answer your questions, Secretary of State Kissinger. Looking back on the war now, would you say that the war was in vain? And what do you feel it accomplished? Well, I think it will be a long time before Americans will be able to talk or write about the war with some dispassion. It is clear that the war did not achieve the objectives of those who started the original involvement. What lessons we should draw from it, I think we should reserve for another occasion. 
When I was growing up, my mom quoted one line to me dozens of times. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. It's from a Sir Walter Scott poem about the court of Henry VIII. I thought of it a lot as we made this series. There's a direct line from Nixon's feeling of futility and misery about Vietnam to the Watergate break-in. His biographer, Evan Thomas. Basically, Nixon's insanity about secrecy and his paranoia about his enemies first leads him to want to do illegal acts to protect himself on Vietnam, which directly leads to illegal acts to get himself reelected in 1972. The abuses of power uh, that he engaged in uh, were linked to his um, support for that war and opposition to the opponents of the war. I mean, go to the enemies list. Most of the people on the enemies list were people who opposed the war. Elizabeth Holtzman is really the anti-Nixon. The same day he was reelected, she became the youngest woman ever elected to Congress as an anti-Vietnam War candidate from Brooklyn and promptly got on the House Judiciary Committee investigating Watergate, drafting impeachment articles. Did you see connections at the time between the Vietnam War and Nixon's conduct of it and the various Watergate crimes? No, I can't say I saw it at that time, all of the machinations, all of the criminality. <laughs> that came out to me and, and was exposed to me as we were doing our, our work on the impeachment effort. Actually, you can trace the Watergate break-in to the Vietnam War itself and the bombing of Cambodia. A New York Times reporter broke a story that the U.S. was bombing in Cambodia. That infuriated Nixon, and he wanted to figure out how that reporter got the information. And that's when his surveillance program started, the illegal surveillance program. So that surveillance program, which was designed to stop leaks about the Vietnam War, were the key to Nixon's illegal surveillance, which is what the Watergate break-in was about, <laughs> illegal surveillance of the Democratic Party in order to win the election, his re-election effort. So, you know, it's a straight line. It's just a straight line. And actually, except for the illegal part, the president himself more or less agreed. My administration did have a carefully limited and totally legal policy of conducting wiretapping for reasons of national security. I do not at all regret having that policy. We were at war in Vietnam. Way before I started reading and thinking about Richard Nixon for this series, I had a big counterintuitive realization about him that I first spelled out a decade ago in a New York Times column. If not for his obsessive resentments and secrecy and paranoia, Nixon would now be considered one of the great presidents. I know, and if pigs had wings. But seriously, I posed this idea to Evan Thomas. If it hadn't been for Watergate, which is a pretty big if, Nixon would have been a very successful president. He opened up China. He got an arms control treaty with the Soviet Union. Now, Vietnam was a bloody mess, and that would have always worked against him. But it was a hard problem, going to be a hard problem for any president. He created the Environmental Protection Agency. He passed other early environmental laws. He actually even was good, even though he was known as a race baiter, he desegregated Southern schools by being very pragmatic about how he went about it. In fact, I think domestically, the most 
expansively liberal president between LBJ and Joe Biden. Because also, the Equal Employment Opportunity Act, tripling the budget for civil rights enforcement, expanding food stamps, creating OSHA and Amtrak, increasing federal arts spending by 500%. At that liberal moment, he let the liberals have their way on those things because he really only cared about global affairs, remaking the world. And Richard Nixon did successfully remake it, but not by means of the war he continued to wage. America's two other epic conflicts abroad, World Wars I and II, transformed the planet. The Vietnam War? As a world historical event, Nixon and Kissinger were right. It was kind of minor league, and thus aggravated them. We are not going to let this country be defeated by this socialist country. The communists won, and long-term, communism didn't spread beyond their little shit-ass country, which has actually done quite well for itself. Geopolitically, the war in Vietnam really only changed Vietnam. But the war had a huge impact on America, on Americans, our culture and psychology and politics in so many ways, then and now. A feeling of division that Richard Nixon exploited and exacerbated in order to get elected and re-elected, as have his political descendants ever since. The lies and hubris and misguidedness of the Vietnam War profoundly undermined Americans' trust in government, which Nixon made worse by keeping the war going for years. You see this cascading set of effects set in motion by the fact that he expanded the war across that border into a neutral, innocent country. John Farrell. Again, it's, it's just this heedlessness about the, the human life at stake that I think is shocking and makes it worse than just eavesdropping on your political opponent. The fate of the people of Southeast Asia just didn't really matter. The extra 25,000 Americans who died and the hundreds of thousands who were wounded in that time didn't matter as much as American prestige. Vietnam, his handling of Vietnam was much more dastardly and painful and underhanded as a whole than anything that happened with Watergate, which really Watergate was dirty political tricks carried to the next level. No question more dastardly. His high crimes in America were bad, the additional death and destruction in Southeast Asia worse. But here's what's also true. Nixon's collateral domestic Vietnam War, a president encouraging Americans to consider fellow citizens their enemies, and his gangsterism that grew out of the war, up to and including Watergate, together, combined, amounted to a horrible, synergistic one-two punch to America's gut radically deepening our cynicism about government and each other and undermining American solidarity for two generations and counting. I'm Kurt Anderson, and from PRX, this has been Nixon at War. Thanks for listening. I'm the writer and a co-producer of this series. The series producer is Emma Wetherill. And the producer and researcher is Caitlin Raffey. Mix engineer, Robin Wise. The executive producer is Steve Atlas. Our original music is by Mason Daring, with additional music by Tim Dickinson. 
For more on the series, visit our website, nixonatwar.org. And if you like what you've heard, please give us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others find us as well. For archival material in the series, our great thanks to the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California, the LBJ Presidential Library in Austin, Texas, the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, Open Vault from GBH Archives, the Air Force Historical Research Agency, nixontapes.org, ADST, the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, and Rotunda, the digital imprint of the University of Virginia Press for use of the presidential recordings. Finally, special thanks to Lucy Anderson, Chris Oppie, Heather Ash, Karen Cariani, Julia Chen, Wilfred Frost, Frank Gannon, Jocelyn Gonzalez, Mike Greco, Derek John, Susan Johnson, Monica Johnson, Frederick Logoval, Timothy Naftali, Luke Nichter, Ryan Pettigrew, Russell Riley, Mark Silverstone, Greg Smith, and Melinda Ward. And to our experts, John Farrell, Daniel Hemmel, Seymour Hirsch, Elizabeth Holtzman, Ken Hughes, Tom Johnson, Hang Wen, and Evan Thomas. Nixon at War has been made possible by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Democracy demands wisdom. <laughs>